Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much that we can uh, gather together around your word. We thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we thank you that uh, uh, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, uh, that we may be equipped for every good work. And so please help us as we look at this passage, uh, that you will uh, train us and equip us in righteousness and teach us to be holy, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Listen to the word of the Lord from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. God was speaking here to the people of Israel. He was speaking about 1,450 years before Christ. And not long before God spoke these words, he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them to a place called Mount Sinai, on the way to the land that he promised them, which was in Palestine, men called Canaan. And around Mount Sinai the people gathered, and God spoke to them from the mountain. He gave them the Ten Commandments, he gave them detailed directions on how they should build their tabernacle, and God dwelt with his people in this tabernacle. And from that tabernacle, he gave detailed instructions on how to be holy. Over the last few weeks, as we've been looking through the book of Leviticus, we've seen some of those instructions that God gave Moses. Two weeks ago, we covered the first seven chapters of the book, and there we saw all the different offerings and sacrifices that God had commanded, and we saw that atonement through a substitute was necessary if we are to worship God rightly. And last week, we looked at chapters 8 to 10, and we saw how the priests were ordained and began their ministry, and we saw that we can only worship God in the way that He chooses. We're not in a position to make it up ourselves. Now, after considering those um, ten chapters, it would be easy to think that the Israelite religion had nothing to do with real life, as it were. It's all about what happens in the tabernacle, with the offerings and the priests and the ceremonial type things. And it's only in the New Testament where, where it changes to involve the whole of life. But Leviticus 11-15, to 15, which we're looking at today, actually firmly debunks that theory. Because here we see instructions that affect the day-to-day life of every ordinary Israelite. They permeate not just the ceremonial things, but not, not even just the moral and ethical things. Things that seem to us to be of no real consequence. And as an example of this, we're looking primarily at Leviticus 11. Now, I don't know what you were thinking when Ethan read you that passage. If you're like me, you'll be thinking, goodness, what's that got to do with anything? Lizards and creatures with split hooves being unclean. I mean, it's there in the Bible, but why are we reading it today? And if in our second Bible reading we heard that Jesus has declared all foods clean, then why bother? How does it fit in? Well, friends, the book of Leviticus tells us how the Israelites were meant to be holy. And this passage talks about that. 
The key verse is that verse I read just now, verse 45, which says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God, therefore be holy, because I am holy. That's the key. But what does it mean to be holy? Now, our generation of Christians doesn't tend to talk much about holiness, does it? Now, we seldom hear sermons about it, we, you have few books about it, and we don't sing about it so much either. It wasn't so much so a couple of generations ago. Uh, holiness was a very popular topic. Um, and nowadays, when we read this, a verse like this one, we just think, oh, he's telling us to be moral, telling us to be good. And when we say we need to pursue holiness, we often mean we ought to behave ethically. And when God says to be holy, then he's saying you ought to do the right thing. Now, at one level that is true. There is a moral dimension to holiness. But it's not just that, there's more to it. God isn't just saying, be moral as I am moral. God's holiness is not just about morality. Holiness is about God being different. Being cut off. Being separate from us. And everything else because He is God. He is unique. There is none other. And so the holiness is about the very Godness of God. His, his, his being God. The Old Testament gives us hints of what this holiness is. Now one aspect of his holiness is his moral purity, his perfection. As one passage says, he's the one whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Another aspect of his holiness is his incredible splendor and majesty and power. Listen to what Exodus 15 says. Who among the gods are like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Another aspect of that holiness is his incomparably holy love. The love with which he yearns for his people with, with deep compassion. We see that in Hosea. God is holy. He is different. He is cut off. He is separate. He is unique. There is no one like him. God is God. He is holy. And God alone is holy in himself. But as this holy God who said to Israel, Leviticus 11.45, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God, therefore be holy because I am holy. Israel was also to be holy because the God who saved them was holy. But if holiness is godness, how could the Israelites be holy? They're not God. Well, if God is holy, or since God is holy, then the things that belong exclusively to him are holy in a secondary way. Things that belong exclusively to him, not for anything else, but just for him, they are holy in a secondary way. They are set apart. And so in Leviticus we read about holy things and holy food and holy offerings and holy priests and the holy place. Now these things aren't particularly moral or majestic or loving or divine. They just belong especially to God. 
and especially to God and be used for his purposes. They are separate, they're set apart for him, and so in that sense they are holy. Now God had saved Israel. He had saved Israel to be a holy people, a people that are set apart for him. Remember, they had been slaves in Egypt. And God performed these mighty signs and wonders to bring them out of slavery. And when they came to Mount Sinai, God said at the beginning of that time at Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19, He said, I am the Lord your God, who... Next, next slide here. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully, keep my covenant, and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, God says, I've rescued you for a purpose. And the purpose I've rescued you is to be a holy people, to be mine. And so Israel was saved to be holy. They were saved to be a people that are different from the rest of the world. A people who are distinct, separate, set apart for God. That was the whole point of their redemption. And if they would do this, if they would, if they would keep the covenant, they would keep the law, the agreement, the treaty, the promises that they've made to God and God's made to them, they would be this holy people. And so it's not long afterwards, while they're still at Sinai, that God says these words in Leviticus 11.45. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy, because I am holy. Now, what would it mean for Israel to be holy? What would it mean for them to be separate, set apart from God, different from everyone else? Well, it would mean morality. God gave them the Ten Commandments. But it would mean a whole lot more than mere morality. In fact, the passage that we're looking at today has got nothing to do with morality as we normally understand it, doesn't it? See, holiness for Israel would mean being separate, being cut off, Distinctive, being unique. It would mean being, being different from the nations around them. And for Israelites, this was to be expressed in a way that seems really foreign to our thinking. In concepts of being clean and unclean. Now, when we read in Leviticus about being clean, it's not talking about you know avoiding grubbiness or making sure you brush your teeth or wash under your armpits or you know, change your underwear and that kind of stuff. Right? The kind of cleanness uh, that's being talked about here is, is what our translation calls ceremonial cleanness. It is, it's, a, it's a religious matter. Everything in the Hebrew mind was divided up into the unclean, clean, and holy. And if anyone is in a state of being unclean, they cannot come before God who is holy. They'll have to stay away until they're clean. It's only the clean that can approach the holy. And so in Leviticus 22, a priest could not do his duties while he was unclean. At the end of the section in Leviticus 15.31, uh, God says, You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. See, the unclean must never touch the holy. Must never come together. 
So there's unclean, there's clean, and there's holy. How do the Israelites know how to keep clean so that they can approach the holy? Well, God tells them. Five chapters, from chapter 11 to 15, deal with various aspects of it. And chapter 11, which we're focusing on really, deals particularly with the animal world. The contents of the chapter are summarized at the end of the chapter, in verses 44 to 47 of chapter 11. It says this, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves on the ground. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God, therefore be holy as I am holy. So the chapters about God is the fact that God is holy, his people should be holy and should avoid becoming unclean. To do so, they'll have to distinguish between animals that would make them unclean and animals that would not. Back in the first half of the chapter, God has said that if a land animal had hoofs separated into two and chewed the cud one ate, then it was edible. If an animal didn't have either of those two things, it was considered unclean, and the Israelites were not allowed to eat it. God said that they could only eat seafood if it had fins and scales. So fish was clean, but they wouldn't be indulging in prawn curry. And they talked about creatures that fly. And they gave a whole list of things that, couldn't, that could be eaten, and things that couldn't. So... When God told them what was unclean, if anything, anyone ate something that was unclean, then, then they themselves would become unclean. Now, in the first half of the chapter, that deals mainly with animals that can't eat. The second half deals with animals they can't touch. And what they could not touch was a dead animal. A carcass would make them unclean. So he starts the section of saying, look, you're not allowed to touch the carcass of an unclean animal. And verse 26 to 28, uh, it says this, Every animal that has a split hoof not completely divided that does not chew the cart is unclean for you and whoever touches the carcass of any of them will be unclean. Of all the animals that walk on all fours these that walk on their paws are unclean for you whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean till the evening. Anyone who picks up their carcasses must wash his clothes and he will be unclean till the evening. They are unclean for you. So with an unclean animal not only you can't eat its meat you can't touch its carcass. But there's more, verse 29. Of the animals that move on the ground, these are unclean for you. The gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, and the chameleon. Of all those that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. Whoever touches them when they are dead will be unclean till evening. When one of them dies and falls on something, that article, whatever its use, will be unclean. Whether it's made of wood, cloth, hide, or sackcloth, put it in water, it will be unclean till evening, and then it will be clean. If any one of them falls in the clay pot, everything in it will be unclean, you must break the pot. Any food that could be eaten but has water on it from a pot, such a pot is unclean. Any liquid that could be drunk is unclean. Anything that one of their carcasses falls on becomes unclean. An oven or a cooking pot must be broken up, they are unclean. You are to regard them as unclean. A spring, however, or a system for collecting water remains clean. Anyone who touches one of these carcasses is unclean. If the carcass falls on any seed it is that is to be planted, they remain clean, but the water put on the seed and the carcass falls out, it's unclean for you. See, not only the carcass is unclean, the, the uncleanness from that can infect other things as well. And, and not only does it stop there, even the carcasses of clean animals are considered unclean. 
In verse 39 to 40, he says, If an animal you are allowed to eat dies, anyone who touches the carcass will be unclean till the evening. Anyone who eats some of the carcass must wash his clothes and he will be unclean till evening. Anyone who picks up the carcass must wash his clothes and he will be unclean till evening. So, touching dead animals that are, make you unclean, uh, you can't eat them anyway. That's a, you understand that. But, but touching dead animals that are clean, well, once they're dead, they're unclean. <laughs> so you can't touch them either. So really, any dead animal other than animal that's been slaughtered for sacrifice before God is unclean. Now, it's only later on that the Israelites, when they were, once they were in the land, then they were allowed to eat um, uh, animals that were, were slaughtered outside the temple area. To remain clean, God's people, at least at this stage, had to have no contact with death except sacrificial death. But there's more. God then reminds his people about one particular group of creatures that are not to be eaten under any circumstance. Look at verse 41. Every creature that moves on the ground is detestable. It is not to be eaten. You are not to eat any creature that moves on the ground, whether it moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet. It is detestable. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of them, by means of them, or be made unclean by them. That's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Detestable. What's detestable? Well, the word is found earlier on as well. It's there in verses uh, uh, 10 uh, to 23. It says, All creatures in the sea or streams that don't have fins and scales, whether among all forming things or among other living creatures in the water, you are to detest. And since you are to detest them, you must not eat their meat and you must detest their carcasses. Anything living in the water that does not have fins or scales is to be detestable to you and then it talks about the birds you are to detest not eat because they are detestable in verse 13 in verse 20 flying insects that walk on all fours up to be detestable to you in verse 23 winged creatures that have four legs you want to detest That's God wants his people to consider all these unclean creatures to be detestable so that people won't eat them When I was at lunch one day, um, back at uh, Moore College where I studied theology, I asked some of my friends at the table, what's the grossest thing that they've ever eaten? I made a good lunchtime conversation. For one, it was pickled pig's brains and what he called a mothball. I'm not quite sure what he meant by that. Another ate sheep's brains and drank lizard wine. And another, an Irishman, uh, ate eyeballs. And he wasn't sure from what animal. You feel slightly sick, don't you, at the thought of eating eyeballs and fish brains and what have you. But see, when I was a child, we had a maid who was a Muslim. I remember once uh, she thought that she'd accidentally eaten pork, and she just vomited. Now, pork normally doesn't do that for me. Yeah? When you when you say pork, I normally salivate. You're like Pavlov dogs, you know. <laughs> I think char siu pao and siu yuk and pork chops and you know that that me with pork yeah Ooh. Right. but but our mate she ended up vomiting in the thought that she could possibly have eaten pork because to her that was detestable friends when God told his people that something was unclean he wanted them to think of it as detestable because if they, they trained themselves to think that way then they would psych themselves often 
And most importantly, if they got the idea of unclean foods as being detestable, then maybe they'd get a glimpse of how the Holy God feels about sin. Now we can understand why God wants his people to be holy. We can understand that being unclean is the opposite of being holy. And so the Israelites were to avoid touching dead animals that would make them unclean. But why are some animals clean and some unclean? What's the criteria to decide between them? Well, various theories have been proposed. Now, some people say it was because of hygiene. Now, several of the unclean animals were known to carry disease, but that doesn't actually account for many of them. And friends, the food laws were abolished with the coming of Jesus, not with the advent of refrigeration and antibiotics. Another theory was the unclean animals were used in pagan worship, and since only clean animals were used in sacrifice, they would stop the pagan worship being getting mixed up in the worship of God. But, but again, that doesn't explain everything. The, the bull was often used in pagan worship, and yet it's considered clean. And our theories of the behavior and habits of clean animals symbolize correct behavior, and then unclean animals symbolize sinful actions. Like in verse 3, chewing the cud made the animal clean because it symbolized meditating on the law. This leads to fanciful interpretations, doesn't it? Gets you nowhere. Another theory is to look for wholeness defined by normality. Animals that are different from the norm in any sphere are considered unclean have a theory, but then who decides what's normal? So in the, in the end, we have to ask, well, what does God say? What, is, what does the Bible say about it? Why can you have lamb chops, but not pork chops? You can eat fish, but not lobster. You can have eggs, but bacon will defile you. An animal with split hoof, it's not completely divided, it's unclean. And what's, what's wrong? Why you single out the weasel and the rat and the great lizard and the gecko and the monitor lizard and the skink and the kim... Why is it that someone that dies and falls on something and becomes unclean to leaving and then is clean again? Why? Because God says so. He couldn't have guessed it from nature. He couldn't have worked it out. He couldn't have got a team of ethicists together and figured out what would be appropriate for Israel as the holy people of God. Now they had to learn that something is clean or unclean simply because... That's what God says. And if God's word declares that something, anything is clean, unclean or holy, then these things are clean, unclean or holy simply because God says so. And incidentally, that's why it's so shocking when Jesus comes along in Mark 7 and declares all foods clean. Why? Because he says so. Who does he think he is? God. Israelites were to follow these laws so they would be the holy people of God. They would be different, separate, they would be distinctive from all the other nations. They would be holy, completely different, having a completely different way of life than, than everyone else around them. These laws would impact on them day by day. Remember chapter 11 is just the beginning of it. It goes on the next four chapters full of laws about things and conditions that would make them unclean and what to do about it. Chapter 12 talks about cleansing rites after the birth of a child. 
chapter 13 about what to do when you get various spots or sores on your skin or baldness on your head. First half of chapter 14, rules for, for cleansing people who have been healed of skin disease. The second half is now what happens when, when you find spots on your wall. Chapter 15 tells you what you do when you have a bodily discharge. When a woman has a period or a man has an emission of semen. You see, as Israelites went about their daily life, they would have to be careful not to become unclean, or if they did, because sometimes that was unavoidable, then they would have to do the prescribed thing to make themselves clean again. And from what they had for breakfast, to what they did when the cow died, to what they did with a rash, to what they did after sex, is all governed by the fact that they were the holy people of God, and they were different. And they will see the whole world from that grid of unclean, clean, holy. And they will be reminded day in and day out that God was holy, His presence was holy, no unclean thing could come near. And they would know they wouldn't be able to live a life of free from uncleanness all the time. And so, and so there were means. Part of the sacrificial system is for God, not just for their sin, but for their uncleanness that God might continue to dwell among them and continue to be God's holy people. If you keep my covenant, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, all these things here are to make Israel different. Different from everyone else. Holy as a nation. Set apart. Now the rest of the Old Testament documents how Israel failed to keep the covenant. To what extent they, they uh, kept the food laws, we don't know, but they certainly haven't kept the weightier parts of the law. They did not keep the covenant, and they were not holy. They fell into the practices of the nations around them. Isaiah writes, they have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. He was spot on when he cried out to the Lord. He said, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Israel was to be a holy nation. But they faced God's judgment because they were not holy. And as the years went by, they showed it. But even as Isaiah was passing the sentence of judgment against the people, he held out the message that one day, God himself would come and cleanse the few that were left, and that they would be called holy. And this is the message of hope that found its fulfillment years and years later. For where Israel failed to be holy, there was one who succeeded. There was one who came under the law, but who needed no law to make him holy. For Jesus not only fulfilled the law, he fulfilled the reality to which the law pointed. He was the one who was truly different, truly set apart for God and his purposes. The book of Hebrews described Jesus as the high priest who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. Jesus Christ was truly holy. Even the demons knew that. They cry out to him, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Oh, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
But even more than just being holy, Jesus shows us what God's holiness is. We've seen glimpses of it in the Old Testament, but nowhere do we see it more clearly than at the cross of the Lord Jesus. Because if God's holiness let any room, left any room for, for sin to be tolerated, if God's holiness allowed anything other than, than judgment for sin, if God's holiness did not mean that sin was completely and utterly detestable, then surely his son would not have died on the cross. God's holiness means that he will not condone sin. And at the cross we see God's holy wrath. Yet at the cross we also see God's holy love. A holy love that yearns for sinners like you and me. A holy love that is willing to pay the ultimate price for our forgiveness and salvation. A holy love that is willing to go to incredible lengths to cleanse the detestably unclean. A holy love that drives God in Christ to bear the full judgment for our sinfulness on himself so that we might be holy and like him. For at the cross the true sacrifice was offered up once and for all. The sacrifice that dealt with sin for all time. The sacrifice that all the sacrifices in Leviticus were pointing to. That was the reality. And God's people were made truly clean by the death of their substitute. God's holy love demanded holiness from us. And at the cross, God provided it. If you want to know what holiness is, then look at the cross. If you want to be holy, then look to the cross. See, if you are someone who trusts in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, then God says that you are holy. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 says that we have been made holy through that once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30, has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. And so when he writes to ordinary Christians in Corinth, he calls them saints, holy ones, ones who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified just means made holy. We call it holified, but there's no such word in the English language, so they have a sanctified. Paul says to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 6 that some of them had been sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers and swindlers. He says, that's what some of you were. And then he says to them, but you were washed, you were sanctified, made holy, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, friends, in Christ we have been made holy. We have been made holy. And in Christ we have become all that Israel was meant to be. Peter says to us, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. If you are in Christ, it's because God chose you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 says, to be holy 
blameless in His sight. And through the cross He made you exactly that. And so when the New Testament talks about sanctification, when it talks about becoming holy, it's referring primarily to something that's already been done. Something that's accomplished by Jesus on the cross. Our holiness is first and foremost what we call positional sanctification. That is, we are holy not because of something that we, anything we've done, or because we're particularly good or anything like that, but because God, the Holy God, has set us apart from the rest of the world to be His exclusively. To belong to Him in a special way. In the New Testament there are no more holy things and holy places and holy foods and holy sacrifices, but there are holy people. And that's you and me, if we belong to Jesus. But then there's another aspect to sanctification. There's a sense that we're called to be holy, not just in actual position, but experientially, in the way we live our lives as well. We are holy in our status, and so we are called to match that by being holy in our actions. We're called to be what we are. The book of Hebrews, which speaks so much of, of Christ's sanctifying work for us, also tells us in chapter uh, 12, verse 14, to make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. The same Apostle Peter, who affirms that we are a holy nation, tells us to be holy in all that we do. But if holiness for the Israelites in the Old Testament was expressed in keeping ceremonial laws with regards to being clean or unclean, what are we going to do now that Jesus has fulfilled the law and declared all foods clean? We don't have to follow the food laws anymore. That was part of God's covenant with Israel back then. We still have to express holiness and how do we do that? Well, the Apostle Peter helps us here. Because he quotes Leviticus 11 and he applies it to Christians. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. See, what he's saying is, look, you are no longer the people that you used to be. So don't live the life that you used to live. Being holy is the opposite of, of conforming to the evil desires that come from our hearts. Because we have to be different. Different from the rest of the world. Different because God has rescued us and saved us. Now that's not an original idea from Peter. Peter got it straight from Jesus himself. Because remember, when Jesus declared all foods clean, he did not get rid of the concept of uncleanness altogether. Listen to what he said again. For what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. See, there's still uncleanness, isn't there? And friends, these are the things that God truly 
considers unclean. These are the things that are detestable. We talked a few moments ago about sheep's eyeballs and other foods that are a little bit unsavory. I want you to imagine with me something that's really gross. Imagine one of those big filthy rats that you find in the sewers or, you know, running around the coffee shops in Bangsa. You got it? It's getting your mind? Now, imagine a big stick and bang, hit it on the head, crush its skull. Okay, got that in your mind. You've got this dead rat now. Now, in your mind's eye, imagine one of those, you know those big metal soup pots they use for cooking wantanmi? You know those? Big metal soup pots, alright? And imagine a ladle, and you take this dead rat, uh, and you put it in the ladle, and you put the whole thing whole into that soup pot. It's gross, isn't it? And as you put it in, it bleaches white. A couple of moments later, you pull it out, you drop it into a bowl, and you pour some soup over it. And now in your mind's eye, cut it open, you put it in a spoon, and you start eating it. Is anyone feeling sick yet? (laughs) Now let me read that list to you again. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Friends, these are the things that nauseate God and make him want to vomit. Like you felt when you thought of that rat. These are the things that are detestable to him. And these are the things that should nauseate us. When we look at ourselves and we see these things, we mustn't grin at them or toy with them or treat them as acceptable as long as they're kept under reasonable control we should feel as sick at the thought of them as we would about eating a filthy rat. They are to be for us despicable, disgusting and repulsive. And like the Israelites of old had to learn to despise various unclean foods, we need to train ourselves to think of them in this way. For evil thoughts and slander and immorality and theft and murder adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness envy, slander, arrogance and folly have no place among the holy people of God brothers and sisters we've been made holy by the death of Jesus on the cross on our behalf we belong to God we must not defile what is God's by making it unclean Listen again to the word of the Lord. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of sin and death and judgment. I am the Lord your God who gave my son to die for you to cleanse you from your sins and make you holy. I am the Lord your God who bought you with my own blood to be your God. Be holy as I am holy. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for calling us to be your people and for making us holy through the blood of your Son. Thank you for the death that he died, for the sacrifice that he made once and for all on the cross to make us holy. Father, as, as your holy people, set apart for you, please help us to express that holiness in our lives. We want to be holy, not just in who we are, but how we live. Help us not to conform to evil desires. Help us to be people who detest evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice and deceit and lewdness and envy and slander and arrogance and folly wherever we find it in our hearts. And when we do, help us always to come back to the cross to be cleansed and forgiven. And we pray this in the name of the one who died and rose again to make us holy. Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.